Hello, this is Samuel coming to you from the 2016 Joint Mathematics Meetings in Seattle, Washington. Relatively Prime would not have been possible without the 340 wonderful, amazing, great people who backed it on Kickstarter. In particular, I would like to thank Thomas Fries, Charles Grant, Duncan McGowan, Carol Jones, and Palindrome Bob, as well as my Kickstarter producers, Daniel Murphy and Edmund Harris. If you want to be as big of a hero as these people, please head over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Every time you do, it becomes more likely that another person will get some great mathematics in their lives. And if that's not enough for you, you can also head over to railprime.com and click the support button to chip in a few bucks. And before we get to the show, if you're a person who enjoys hearing creative folks talk about things they're excited about, and I know that you do, you're listening to this show, then you should check out Jacob Haller's Tell Me About Your Song podcast, where he talks to songwriters and composers about a song that they wrote. There's a new episode every couple of weeks, and you can find it on iTunes or at tellmeaboutyoursong.com. And now, for the first episode of the second season of Relatively Prime, The Lexicon. The three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, have formed the basis of formal education for centuries, at least since they were mentioned by Sir William Curtis in 1795. Even if he probably used reckoning instead of arithmetic, but I think we can all agree, arithmetic is just more fun to say. And for a lot of people, I think the three R's could really just be simplified even further, down to the two glyphs, letters and numbers. For most people, arithmetic or reckoning or mathematics or whatever you want to call it, falls directly under the umbrella of numbers. And that isn't incorrect. Numbers are very much mathematics brand. Numbers are how mathematics is represented to children from a very young age. And when you show an aptitude for the subject, you're even branded a numbers person. I mean, there's even a YouTube channel featuring videos about cool mathematics that's called Number File. But mathematics is way more than numbers. And before you go making a joke about how, of course it is, otherwise we'd never be able to solve for X, I mean that mathematics is way more than just individual letters too. Letters, and that thing you get when you put a bunch of letters together and make them into words, and then you take those words and you put them together according to some set of rules called language, it plays a very important role in mathematics. And that, that is what we're going to talk about today. This is Relatively Prime, language from the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. When it comes to talking about language and mathematics. Actually, you know what? I don't feel like being that formal with y'all. Let's try this again. When it comes to talking about language and math... I'm sorry, what are you saying? What is this math? Are you talking about maths? Ugh, math. Math. I do mean math, Peter. For those of you who don't recognize that voice, that's Peter Rowlett. We used to have a podcast together. Math Maths. Hello, Peter. 
Hello, what do you want? Peter, you called me. Uh, Don't even try to pull this. I, I forgot how the fake uh, calling arrangement thing works. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if you can't tell from his accent and imperious manner, Peter's British, where they quite incorrectly say maths instead of math. For what reason, I don't know. But they are quite happy with themselves about it. We're happy because we're right, Sam. You, you know what, Peter? You, you are not worth another word. Else, I'd call you knave. Hey, that's Shakespeare. He was British too. You starveling, you eel skin, you dried newt's tongue, you bull's pizzle, you stockfish. Oh, for breath to utter what is like thee. You tailor's yard, you sheath, you bowcase, you vile standing Oh, Sorry, sorry it took me so long. I should have written down the fade out on him a little bit sooner, I think. But now that he's gone, let's talk a little bit more about just how right the British think they are about maths. I just had to give up and say mass. It's one of those things that the British have very little patience for in American English. They'll put up with my accent. They'll put up with me talking about trash instead of rubbish or things like that. But maths is one that really gets people. And that was Lynn Murphy. My name is L-Y-N-N-E-M-U-R-P-H-Y. She's a reader in linguistics at the University of Sussex in England. And as you might be able to tell from her accent, she hails from the land of math. I figured, who better than a linguist from the United States living in England to talk about the divide which has destroyed innumerable Anglo-American mathematical friendships? Okay, y'all, I need to be honest with you for a second here. I don't know if you know this about me, but I have a certain tendency to be loud and obnoxious. And also to take very extreme stances on things, which in no way are worth having any such stance. And I've definitely done this a few times with respect to the word maths. As a matter of fact, a few times is a rather massive understatement. I do this every single time that I talk to anyone from England. So trust me, I have heard every single pro-maths argument. We're doing algebra and geometry and calculus, not just one thing, not just one math, so maths. It's a contraction, not a truncation, and contractions are just better. And our accent just sounds a lot cooler than yours, and you should listen to us. So I really haven't heard that last one. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, that's what I hear whenever anyone from England is talking to me. But back to the other arguments, the contraction versus truncation one is a total non-starter. Neither is clearly superior, even in my quick to ridiculously strong opinion's eyes. So really, the standout argument is the plural one, which is why I started there with Lynn. Is mathematics plural? No. Well, there we go. Case closed. Mathematics is not plural, so bye bye maths. But... I guess some of you will probably want some more proof. So I guess we can go just a little bit deeper. You can see because when we talk about it, we don't say mathematics are uh, interesting or anything like that. Mathematics move me. We use it with a singular verb, generally. You could think of math or math as encompassing many things, but grammatically that word is, is singular. Lynn went on to explain to me that the plural 
the S at the end of mathematics is an artifact from Greek, where they used the word mathematica, which was the adjective form, and it meant all of the math-like things. So in Greek, the word was plural, but when it moved to English, it became singular. There's even a wonderful way to check this, a way that harkens back to one of the first things you ever learned to do in math, counting. And in counting, you very quickly get past the singular one and onto the plural two or three or four, and if mathematics or maths is plural, you should be able to count them. You should be able to say, I had three mathematics this morning. And we can't say that. I, I will say that does sound like a great breakfast. <laughs> Tasty. That, I mean, I, I understand that, that, I mean, there's a difference between um, the study of mathematics, the, the study of linguistics, but the idea that mathematics is not countable might be the, the funniest thing that I've thought of in a really long time. <laughs> Actually, that hasn't even occurred to me. It's a, it's a pun. <laughs> I know. I know. This is a serious show. You tune in every week to Relatively Prime because we do serious investigations into the world of mathematics, and I am letting you down here. So let's get into this properly. If we're really going to determine who is right... <clears throat> math! Math! Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. And if we're going to determine who is right and, and who is wrong... <clears throat> Oh, excuse me. I, I'll, I'll suck on a cough drop soon, I swear. If we're going to determine who is right and who is wrong, our first step should be to determine where math and maths came from. The reason why people started abbreviating it as math or maths was not to, to reflect the meaning that is about what mathematicians do. It was talking about it as a school subject. So math could be the school subject where you study mathematics. Mathematics is not the only subject to undergo this treatment. Lin's own subject of linguistics is shortened to ling in course catalogs. Chemistry is chem, biology is bio, and so forth. The real difference with math, according to Lin, is that math didn't stay in that catalog. It became part of our everyday spoken language, and not just for the name of a class either. It became the word for what's taught in that class which is quite different as you don't hear linguists walking around saying, yep, did a lot of ling today. But I do think that we can all agree that we would love to hear that. Getting back on the course of trying to figure out who was right. <coughs> Math is right. <coughs> oh, oh man, I, I am so sorry. I cannot possibly apologize enough to you. <sighs> Getting back on the course of trying to figure out who was right Maybe we should just look at who was first. And, and so I guess, I guess then uh, now the question is, I mean, to, I mean, to settle out who's, who's right and who's wrong is, is just which came first? The American came first, um, or at least as far as we can see, because um, it's difficult to know exactly when things first were said. But since this does look like something that was first written, we're probably, we've probably got better evidence for it than most things. It turns out that math first pops up in a diary as math period in 1847. Now that's clearly an abbreviation, and probably one that wasn't meant to be spoken, but it was published in the New York Herald as early as 1878. And maths? Well, maths doesn't even pop up until 1911. And then it's only as an abbreviation in a letter. So clearly, 
math is first and math is better and math wins once and for all and we can just move on to the next topic awesome that's great let's go usa 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 USA! Um, wait USA. there, Sam. I do believe Lynn had more to say. So, so given that, that math came first, and, and I mean, just listening to it and how it's used, is clearly the, the correct and, and proper shortening of mathematics. Have you ever just been tempted to, like, move back across the Atlantic Ocean so you can <laughs> just start using the right word again? No, because, I mean, as much as I like to champion the cause of American English in the face of its degradation by various parties... I'm not going to say that it's the right one because it was the first one. First doesn't mean real. First doesn't mean best. It just means first. As far as these are concerned, they're, they're two different ways of saying something. I have my suspicions about why people get more upset about this one than other things. Um, do you want to hear my suspicions? Uh, oh, I would, why love, <laughs> I would love to hear your suspicions. I mean, when when you look at the things that... that that British people care about in American English. One of them was herb and herb. And they care about that one because H is a real marker of social class in Britain. So when you've got one that really brings on people's ire, there's really usually a, a reason for that ire. And in this case, I think the ire is just coming from the fact that the people who are using this word and caring about this word are people who do mathematics and, and who are used to there being nice rules so the population who cares about this word has has a more rigid sometimes relationship with how languages work than maybe the general population does and so not everybody you know cooks don't care that much if you say courgette or zucchini they're they're happy for there to be lots of variety in language but mathematicians i think are a little bit more conservative I mean, are you saying that mathematicians are a, a buttoned up and stayed sort of people? I'd say, I mean, if you look at the people who peeve about grammar a lot, you know, there there is this whole sort of brand of, of nerdiness right now that is a sort of stylish kind of nerdiness that has become popular, in which not only do people care about math and science, but they get really exercised about grammar and about spelling and about correcting each other's spelling and things like that. And yeah, it does seem to be coming out of this sort of sense that it's good to care about rules. And when it comes to language, there are rules in language, but the rules in language are the ones that we're not conscious of, the ones that help us to put sentences together. The rules like you should be saying this instead of that, you should be saying math instead of math, those are just social conventions. They're not anything to do with logic. They're not to do with being correct or incorrect. They're just to do with being part of a society in which this particular shape of sounds signifies this particular shape of things. And that's arbitrary. That's the thing about words and languages. Which word symbolizes which thing is a completely arbitrary thing. And so it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to rules, but some people like rules. Some people are made comfortable by rules. I I certainly have no idea what she's talking about. No idea whatsoever. I'm just going to sit here under my rule blanket being very comfortable remembering that math came first and that it sounds better and that it's said with the correct sort of accent and that I'm right because rules. But 
I still don't know of what she speaks. Not at all. Ugh, okay, whatever. Fine. They're both, they're both fine. Whatever. I'm not going to toss down my script. <sighs> Say maths if you want to. What, what do I care? It's the least satisfying ending ever. Ugh, this is just terrible. But you know what? You know what? Screw that. Screw that. You know what? Maths, maths, you can go suck on a toad. Math forever. Math, 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 Oh, oh, that feels a lot better. Oh, so much better. But I do notice I've just said maths twice, even though I'm talking to an American. Oh, well. Now that we have that argument settled once and for all, totally definitively, that's that's my story. I'm going to stick to it. Just believe me, please. It's time to dig deep into the language of mathematics. You could even say that we're going all the way down to its roots. One of the things about the language of mathematics is that a lot of it comes from languages, like the languages that we speak. Well, to be fair, not the actual languages that we speak, at least not that we speak anymore. A lot of mathematical language is old, and it stems from languages like Greek, Latin, and Arabic, languages in which I am definitely not fluent, and would wager that you probably aren't either. But don't worry, all is not lost. Because during my investigations into mathematical language, I found Origins of Mathematical Words, a comprehensive dictionary of Latin, Greek, and Arabic roots, a very useful book written by this man. Well, my name is Anthony Lobello. I'm a professor of mathematics at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania. While mathematicians do find themselves rather well acquainted with the Greek alphabet, this acquaintanceship it doesn't tend to extend itself to knowledge of the Greek language, unless the mathematician is Greek, of course, or if the mathematician is Anthony Labello. While Anthony's knowledge of Greek marks him as a bit of an outlier, his interest in language goes way back. I had been studying classical languages since I was in high school. And his interest didn't wane. In fact, while he was getting his PhD in mathematics from Yale, he actually considered transferring to do a PhD in Latin and Greek instead. Only the probable lack of job prospects, and of course a love of mathematics, kept him on the mathematical path. At his first job as a mathematics professor, the school where he found himself had a large population of Arabic-speaking students. So he did the clearly logical thing. He added Arabic to his growing stable of languages, and judging by the books that he's written on Arabic mathematical transcripts, it was quite a useful addition. All of this is to say that Anthony has a very solid foundation in Latin, Greek, and Arabic. But I bet that there's still a lot of you listening right now who are saying, I don't care if he has a solid foundation. I don't want to read a dictionary even one that's filled only with mathematical words, the coolest words in the world. Well, you're wrong. And thankfully, I know that after listening to my conversation with Anthony, you're going to change your mind. I mean that. This is a dictionary that I read from cover to cover, and I was happy that I did. 
you have very strong feelings about about words being used correctly and being used in in the best ways. What is uh, where does this uh, kind of really strong feeling about about making sure that the that say a word that comes from an ancient language that's not spoken anymore still holds true to the way it was designed to be used. If a if you have no if a person has no knowledge say of Chinese and Japanese and then someone should make a sentence or words mixed with part Chinese and part Japanese words of po- of course that individual wouldn't sense anything wrong because he wouldn't understand the, what uh, the background however if you are, if you know for example latin greek and english then when words are made that are distracting because of the incompetent way they're put together it is jarring or it can be amusing for example just today i was listening to the news and there was a story about the eclipse of the uh, of the sun in europe and they mentioned that the people that were watching it were umbrophiles well, by which they meant people that liked to look at the shadows. But umbra is Latin and files is Greek. Now, if you know neither, it's a, it doesn't distract you. But someone that knows both realizes that it's not an intelligent composition. Words should be formed according to principles that you use. The different parts should, if possible, come from the same language. But since there's no dictatorship of language, this can't be assured, and it's not my point to say these words shouldn't be used. I simply describe that their origin was from a standpoint of lack of knowledge about the the parts that were combined to produce them. So I describe that, and I, you know, when you write a book, you have to... People, everyone has his own personality, and so I'm told that mine came through in that. Uh, people that told me that, some of them uh, had their tongue in their cheek when they said so. I like to talk about words, and sometimes I make fun of of uh, compositions that strike me as hilarious. But it's not it's not meant to be. Uh, I don't mean to say that these words can't be used anymore or shouldn't be used, just that their origin was somewhat illegitimate. Now, I, I mean, I'm 100% okay with it because it, 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 like, this is the most entertaining dictionary I've ever read. Uh, maybe actually the only dictionary I've, I've ever read from, from like one end all the way to the other. So I, I was okay with, you know, the, the quirks of your personality. They came through and it made it more enjoyable for me. Yes, your, uh, people have told me that. Of course, not everyone was so satisfied with it. A few found my criticisms, uh, which many times I gave with tongue-in-cheek, uh, perhaps a little bit too harsh. But in general, those that, that can enjoy something written honestly accept it, and then the others, well, they're worth uh, they can state their opinion. I certainly didn't hold back in the book. I, the world allows people to write. Uh, a man can write what he what he will, and then he, once it's out, people will react to it in accordance with their knowledge and sensibilities. But thank you for telling me that you enjoyed it. I'm very happy to hear that. 
Uh, so let's let's start talking about a few of the words uh, in the book. Let's uh, start off with a word that uh, typically has uh, has a bit of a, a bit of a story attached when you're when you're not in high school. Say you're you're actually studying mathematics in college. You start to hear about the word algebra and and the story of of where it came from 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 uh, you know the mathematicians in the Arabic world. Uh, but uh, you you have a rather long entry about algebra in in the dictionary. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where the word algebra ca- uh, came from and also the problems that can be caused by transliteration. Yes, algebra, like many words that begin with A-L, is of Arabic origin. So this word came into the world in the medieval period as a result of Latin translations of Arabic texts. You see, the knowledge of the Greek language went nearly to zero in Western Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire and the invasions of the barbarians and the decline of civilization in the West. In the East, the Arabs, when they came out of the Arabian Peninsula and and occupied most of the territories of the Eastern or Greek Byzantine Roman Empire, they came into contact with the Greek literature and the learned caliphs, the heads of the uh, Muslims, had the Greek mathematical works translated into Arabic. The Europeans, around the time of the Crusades, came into contact with the Muslims and translated the Arabic translations into Latin. And that's where we get our word algebra. Algebra was used in an Arabic text. The Latin translator wasn't sure what to do with it, so he just transliterated transliterations are made when we don't seem to have a proper word for it in our own language, or we just don't know. And that's how the word came into usage in the Middle Ages by a fellow who was a big translator of, uh, of uh, Arabic mathematical texts, Robert of Chester, and he just transliterated that word into Latin, and it just stayed uh, and then I, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going through these alphabetically because uh, I went, I went through the book alphabetically, and when I was pulling out words to talk to you about, and I, I was, I was looking forward to seeing this word because I studied graph theory, I studied combinatorics when I was doing, uh, doing my graduate work in mathematics, and and then I sadly found out that my my chosen area of study happens to be a mongrel. <laughs> now you understand, I. I don't say the word must be abolished. This is some people may have gotten that impression. No, I'm simply describing that if I had to create a word for this subject, I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> well, I, I I understand. It was just uh, it was just you know one of those one of those kind of interesting. Ones. I was like, oh, I like because I I don't have any you know training in Latin. I don't have any training in Greek. I just have like the barest amount of education in Spanish. And so it's it's really interesting to me to to like see these words that all of a sudden I had I had no idea were actually being taken from multiple languages and just kind of smushed together. Yes, that happens all the time. And of course, in the case of combinatorics, it describes something that's valuable and the word doesn't sound objectionable to ninety nine percent of the population, so it's established itself and it's now a good word. But its origins are not uh, legitimate. It just puts together the, a Greek ending on a Latin word 
and that just sounds funny. To say, I mean, if a if a, a Grecian milkmaid or paper or Latin paper boy heard a word like that, it would amuse him. So it's not it's a good modern word, but it was not coined intelligently, and it's too late to do anything about it. Uh, can you tell me or, or just speak a little bit? Because uh, this is another one where where I found the root to have have a, a a very nice actual definition one that i would actually be okay uh taking over the the more scientific definition that's uh for the word hypothesis uh, and also could you uh since since i can't actually read the greek uh in the book i was wondering if you might be able to uh say perhaps what the original greek was like actually pronounce the word yes the word hypothesis hypo that is a transliteration of the Greek word for under, upsilon, pi, omicron. And the thesis fragment, that comes from the Greek word for standing, to stand. It's a basis for something. So a hypothesis is something that is under where you're standing, supporting you. So the hypothesis would, some, would be an assumption upon which you could base some conclusion. That's the origin of it etymologically. For the word sign, uh, it seems to have had a, a very long journey uh, through, through multiple languages. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about how a, a Sanskrit word ends up being, or at least a word that seems to have started in Sanskrit, uh, ends up being part of our modern mathematical lexicon? Yes, the word seems to have come over from Sanskrit into Arabic, and then from Arabic into Latin. And then when books started to be written in English, what had been referred to in Latin as the sinus just became the scene or the sign. Mathematicians who were writing in English had no reason to make any change. They just took the Latin word and took off the ending. So it, that's a word that comes to us as the fourth language. The, the, the first two, the, the Sanskrit and the Arabic, were similar sounding, and then the change was made when the Latin the Latin uh, translators did actually translate the Arabic word. Unlike in the case of algebra, where they transliterated the Arabic word, in the case of the sign, they translated the original Arabic word, which was jab, jab. The two earliest forms sounded similar, and now the two more recent forms, the Latin and the English, are similar. And you have four languages involved. So the last the last word I'm going to talk to you about is the word uh, trivial, which, uh, as as you describe it, used to uh, used to have a a very different meaning, shall we say, than it does now, uh, and used to mean the the three roads, uh, uh, and now it, it's a rather pejorative term. How did how did something uh, move from from that one pole to the other? Well, in the Roman Empire, people used to congregate at certain places, for example, a bridge. So if you wanted to make a speech or to sell something you had, you'd go to the bridge. Another place you'd go would be an intersection of roads. And the original meaning of the word 
Trivium was a place where three roads came together. After that, it acquired the meaning of the three non-mathematical subjects of the seven liberal arts. The pejorative sense seems to have come into the in English because you'd find everybody, in other words, the common people at the bridges or at the intersections. So anything involving large numbers of people could be interpreted as something derogatory. You're talking about the uneducated masses. And this somehow seeped into the use of the word so that trivial acquired the connotation of something that was just common to the most ignorant or unqualified people and therefore not worth much. So the word has a long history in a physical fact that everyone congregated at certain places, in particular at an intersection of three roads, to where it eventually came to mean something that was just commonplace, not worth much attention. And that's what it's, how it's used in mathematics for cases that are so elementary that one wouldn't write on them at any great length. One would leave them for the reader. Hey, well, Tony Labello, thank you very much uh, for giving me your time and talking to me today. Samuel, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I know that I've been neglecting a rather integral aspect of mathematical language, but when this music ends, this music right now, the music that I am playing underneath these words, when that music ends, I promise that that oversight, it's going to get remedied. I can't talk about the language of mathematics and only talk about mathematical words. That would mean that I'm leaving out half of the language, as the symbols are just as important as the words. Where would we be without the addition and subtraction symbols, parentheses and radicands, and all of the various things that Greek letters like pi can stand for? As a matter of fact, symbols are so important that I knew if I didn't find someone to talk to about them this episode, well, this episode would be a joke. Which is why after I read the book Enlightening Symbols, I just knew that I had to talk to its author, Joseph Mazur. My pen name is Joseph, so I go by Joseph, my friends call me Joe. Professor Emeritus at Marlboro College, an author of a ton of mathematical books, not just Enlightening Symbols. And when I got Joe on the phone, I figured I might as well start at the beginning. So when, when mathematics uh, started out, when, when mathematics first came around, was it in any way symbolic? No. Not at all. Not at all. And we're not talking about mathematics not being symbolic back during the time of the Sumerians or the Babylonians or even the Greeks. He means that mathematics was not symbolic until very, very recently. The representation of mathematics uh, has been, up until about the 16th century, has always been rhetorical. In other words, it's all in words. 
uh, you know, it's a real surprise. It, it, and in fact, it surprises many mathematicians. And a lot of the modern mathematics is uh, jabberwocky to anybody who would be uh, coming in to this, uh, who had lived in, let's say, the 15th century. Of course, that doesn't mean that great mathematics wasn't being done. We all know about Euclid and the elements, not to mention Brahma, Gupta, and Zero, or Louis Hui's Pi interpolation, and I in no way mean to lessen their importance. I just find it amazing to think that the mathematicians of the 9th century couldn't even begin to read the mathematics that we do today. Or in other words, if the father of algebra, Al-Khwarizmi, had picked up your high school algebra textbook, he would have no idea what he was looking at. Which of course brings to mind, how did they do what they did without symbols? Algebra had been around since, you know, since the 9th century, really. And some great things were done in algebra, actually, with words. I mean, I can't imagine myself doing anything like that. I can't. Oh, I definitely can't imagine myself doing anything like that either. I mean, my brain just sort of shuts off when I try to think about solving this problem that I found in Joe's book without using symbols. What must be the amount of a square, which when 21 dirhams are added to it, becomes equal to the equivalent of 10 roots of the square? I guess it's lucky that my brain turns back on when I think about solving x squared plus 21 equals 10x. And while it may not seem like it, those are the exact same problem. And it's rather clear to me which one I would actually be able to solve. So thankfully for me, when the 16th century came along, so did symbols. And it seems that I may not be the only one who prefers them. By the end of the 16th century, it is amazingly symbolic. I mean, it's just an enormous number of symbols, and uh, it's expressed as a symbolic language. So, symbols came in and took over the joint pretty quickly. And by doing so, they changed mathematics into what we think of when we hear the word today. And, oh, oh no, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. I just realized I've been committing a cardinal sin of mathematics. Here, I've been talking about this term, symbols, and I haven't properly defined it. I'm, I'm so sorry. Let's, let's remedy that right now. For me, a symbol is something that is graphic, but it is also something that doesn't look like the thing it represents. And that's important, because if you don't have that as the definition, then everything is a symbol. Every word is a symbol. And that is why you need to define terms first. Because Joe's definition means one of the symbols I mentioned earlier isn't really a symbol at all. Let's say you express the word pi. And pi really means uh, the Greek letter pi. And you say, well, that's a symbol. Well, it's a symbol, but it is also suggesting that you know something about the perimeter of a circle because the, the word perimeter starts with a P, and therefore there's something suggestive about it already. Whereas if you take the symbol equality, that's suggesting something, but it's only suggestive. It doesn't look at all like the thing it represents. And, and that's the difference. Okay, now we have symbols defined, and we know when they took hold, but we really haven't talked about the how. The use of symbols comes down to making communications easier. 
And while symbols which allow you to take a paragraph's worth of text and represent it as an equation, they're great. They really are. It doesn't do you a lick of good as a mathematician to use those symbols if no one understands what that equation even means. Information was was difficult. It just it didn't it didn't spread so easily. But of course, once you get printing and once it becomes less expensive and once it, people get the idea that you know you can get a book printed and then send it to somebody else or have it sent to somebody else then it becomes a kind of an information highway. Once you have that, you, you can imagine what's just happened with the Internet over just a 10-year period, the proliferation of information that's, that's uh, available now. So the same thing was happening that way in Europe. And it was this proliferation of ideas through books and correspondence that allows mathematicians to spread their ideas faster than they've ever been able to before. But even with all of these mathematical ideas traveling far and wide, the symbols, someone still had to think them up. People were writing uh, whatever they thought was just a representation. It didn't matter what it was, just a kind of a letter or a squiggle of some sort, and writing uh, dictionaries for what they mean by whatever they were using as a representational picture. The problem with that is they weren't thinking in advance. This led there to be many competing symbols in the mathematical world of varying degrees of quality. For example, let's think about square roots. This is an operation where depending on the symbol, it could introduce a ton of ambiguity. And Joe included examples of just this in Enlightening Symbols. It took centuries and a lot of different symbols for us to get to the one that we use today. Centuries of work on the Radicand aside, you would hope that when a well-thought-out, well-executed symbol was created, it would be adopted right away. But we all know that isn't how it works. There were a lot of simple ideas for symbols that took years to actually be implemented. It's, it's, it's strange for us to see that, but we're, we're sort of a little bit smug in the way we see these symbols in, a, in modern thought, but you just have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who isn't thinking the way we're thinking. But just because some square root symbols were bad, really, really bad, and some good ideas took way, way too long to be implemented, that doesn't mean that there weren't some symbols that just worked. Robert Record, uh, he was writing a treatise in about, I think it was 1557. It was published in 1557, anyhow. And as he was writing it, for about the first 200 of those pages, he would write equalis. And so <laughs> after that, you know, these people were writing with quills. Uh, <laughs> so it probably was uh, giving him all sorts of carpal tunnel uh, uh, syndrome. <laughs> but uh, he writes in the book, I've been writing Equalis for about 200 pages or 200 times. Why don't I just use this particular symbol to indicate Equalis? And he writes these two lines, which we know as equals. They were very long, by the way. And there were two lines, two parallel lines. And he explains the lines are identical, meaning one is this and one is that, and those two are equal. And that's his idea. It's a beautiful thing, 
because before that, the, the expression would be something like 4 plus 2 makes 6. And when you say it that way, you see that there's a kind of a hierarchy. There's the 4 to plus 2 comes first, and then the 6 comes after. So there's no mirror image in that in when you're contemplating that. But with the equal sign, Robert Greckard is suggesting that there's no no hierarchy. You can read it from right to left or left to right. Later on in our conversation, Joe told me that the equal sign is one of very few symbols which has survived in essentially the same form since its first appearance in mathematical writing, which is really cool and a sign of truly great design. I guess, I guess I'm just left with one question. Are symbols good? The gain is you're able to compact a lot of information into what I call little suitcases of knowledge. And these suitcases, they're packed really full. Just think of the equation x minus 2 equals 0. If I was going to unpack that into plain language, what I would be left with would sound something like this. A value where you have nothing left when you remove 2. And the amount of information packed into these suitcases, it only gets crazier from there. Think about the amount of information embedded in a summation symbol. Or, even better, the amount of information in an integral sign. But whenever you gain something, all too often, something has to be given up. And what we've lost is the, the meaning behind what we've done and how we communicate uh, what we've done to others who um, don't know the secrets of the packages uh, that are labeled as symbols. And in this episode's least surprising turn of events, this is something that I worry about. I know. Who would have guessed it? The person who spends all of their time talking about mathematics is worried that we may have lost some of our ability to communicate about it. Crazy, right? And while we might not be in the right cultural context in order to understand it, when you think of how simple things become when you break them down into natural language, I can understand where Joe is coming from. When you do explain everything in plain language, you don't have to define a bunch of extra terms. You don't have to rely on a person having a dictionary of symbols stored in their head. Plus, sentences are just naturally less intimidating than equations. It may take more time and effort, but understanding can be achieved. All of that said, it's not a good enough reason to stop using symbols. It's not. Symbols are one of the most significant things that has ever happened to mathematics, and we wouldn't live in the world that we live in today without them. So symbols are important. And if you ask me, they're definitely a net good. But sometimes, sometimes you just have to wonder if there might not be a better way to do things. Is there some meaning that we can get to by expressing the symbolic notation in a different way and not suggesting that all I have to do is manipulate the symbols and come out with an answer and in the end I got an answer and I don't know really what I did. All I, I did it at like a Rubik's Cube and I've, I've uh, come up with a solution to the Rubik's Cube. Whether or not I'm doing mathematics like I'm playing with a Rubik's Cube or not, I don't want to have to go back and do things the old way. I don't know about you, 
but I never want to have to figure out what must be the amount of two squares, which when summed up and added to 10 times the root of one of them, make up a sum of 48 dirhams. Give me the integral from negative pi to pi of 1 over the square root of cosine theta d theta any day of the week. Actually, I don't remember how to solve that. Where's my calculus textbook? I'll be back. I'm willing to admit that the typical mathematical civilian doesn't think too much about the mongrel nature of combinatorics, or how long it took the radican to get developed. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that if I were to go out family feud style and ask 100 people on the streets what they thought of when they heard the words language and mathematics, the number one answer by a score of around 99 to 1 would be word problems. I would also bet that if you asked most of those people what they thought about word problems, the answers wouldn't be complimentary. Thankfully, I'm here to tell you that it doesn't have to be like this. My name is um, Kirti Premadasa. I'm an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin, Baraboo, South County. I'm Taranga Vijaytunga, and I'm teaching at Lyon College, Batesville, Arkansas. So I'm assistant professor of mathematics. So let's let's talk, start out here. What do students say when you say word problem? Usually, for college algebra students, um, uh, it comes with a groan. Oh, yeah, it's the same reaction. No, not again, not today. And so then especially say, with that. Are we going to get word problems for the exam? <laughs> That's the next one. Yeah. Are there are there word problems that say students will groan less at? Students uh, seems to, um, what's the word, to um, dislike less problems from two categories. Um, category one, uh, we like to call it the I category, problems which have some, some kind of intrigue attached to them. Curiosity, yuckiness, zombies. I mean, a good example would be um, rather than the famous coffee cup cooling problem, they would rather like a dead body uh, and then they would like to find the time of death. And the other type of problem that they seem to dislike less are the problems which, um, you need to be careful with the wording, so, uh, which, uh, which they can easily relate to. Like a problem where they learn to find the angle at which they should uh, throw a, f uh, like a free throw from the free throw line in basketball. Sports problems, students can easily relate to and they actually dominate the R category most of the time. So I and R category, we proved com comprehensively that they are preferred more than the U category. Now, what are these U category problems? The U category actually are the more formal problems which deal with the constructions and then uh, more formal calculation. Uh, here is an example. If you want to find the growth of the U.S. population, that would be a U category because uh, the students think, oh, somebody else is going to do that. The U.S. population is a very distant problem. What did you decide to look at next instead of, like, what problems will they like more? What was, what was the next step? We want the students to remember these concepts at the end of the semester at least. So we wanted to check uh, any of these categories will have students remember. So are there problems that they actually remember? Because if they don't remember, we have a big problem. Because we throw these word problems at them and they don't remember it at the end of the semester. Forget about three or four years down the line. We do have a serious problem. 
So that's what we were trying next. He had that categories identified and students less dislike kind of a thing. <laughs> and then uh, we thought maybe do if they prefer that particular problems, will there any possibility of them to remember them and remember most of the mathematical concept which relate to those problems. So we selected four topics in trigonometry which were kind of heavier on uh, word problems. Those were angle and measure, uh, right angle trigonometry, and then the law of science or law of cosines. Uh, in math, when we teach uh, a trig, we always start with some triangles or something, and then we go move on to the word problems. And the first set of word problems, what I call our marketing problems, that's where we market the, the law of science, the more of science. So what we did was, for that introduction, we selected three problems. For, so one U problem, one I problem, and one R problem from each of the four sections. Then at the end of the semester, we gave them a survey. The first page of the survey was really scary. No clues, no hints were given. We just asked them to recall anything that they remembered. Because we were a little scared about that first page, we actually gave a second page where we actually prompted them and asked them out of the following problems, which ones do you remember most and which one do you remember less? And we also threw in some problems that we did not cover just to see whether they would select those. And Taranga, you know, it was the nicest part is that in the second page, yeah, yeah that uh, the last... Yeah, out of the selections, we assume, okay, probably they will select some of the problems because at some point they may have seen that kind of a problem in different situations. Apparently for this class, all the problems that we did not discuss but were given in the page two, they rated the lowest. as the lowest ones. So the lowest so. rating scale for problems that we did not cover in the course. And we were happy at least they, they knew what we did not cover. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I mean, so I mean now we can start about thinking about what they would. And, and, and of course, in page one and page two, the top problems were I and R problems. Spot on I and R problems. So the pattern is holding. We are going to do something even more radical, which is to actually to um, go walk into campus one day and get some staff members who are non-mathematicians and then ask them, uh, do you remember anything from your college days in math? Do you remember? And then try to collect a whole lot of them and see whether there is an emerging pattern. Were there any examples for either of you of, of like specific word problems that you did remember? From our days? Yeah. yeah. What I remember uh, is that uh, that was mostly to do with um, when our differential equations professor, um, he was t teaching me about resonance in differential equations and he told of an example where there was a bunch of soldiers who were marching on a bridge and the bridge broke because the the marching resonated with the vibration of the bridge and after that they started the practice of breaking the march while on the bridge. I remember that very well because again it's a kind of an eye category problem. Suddenly you see the bridge breaking and that's exciting. You know, now that you, I, mean, I never thought about it until you asked me this question but actually that is, uh, that is one of the problems I do remember. Yep. When I was in grade 11 and grade 12, I had difficulties with the relative velocity. And then at some point, one of the teachers talked about a problem with cricket. And he said, you want to catch the ball, and then ball is moving, and you are moving. And then if one of the things is stopped, then the other one has to go and catch. So then you have to add the speed. And then in the context of cricket, I can relate that. If I want to stop the ball, I have to run fast. Okay, that's how I add. 
That's why I add when you're going in the opposite direction and so on and so forth. What about an area where INR problems are not as easy to come by? Well, we did have an area like that. And actually, um, the law of cosines uh, was an area like that because the law of cosines, most of the problems were based on survey. You know, usually what I do was I put in um, uh, like a little clause by saying that there are crocodiles on the lake. So you can't really swim the lake and measure the length. Yeah. So you have to actually use something to do that. It kind of works, but usually these construction, the survey type of problems are very you type of problems. So we had to really fight hard to find a good uh, set of problems for cosine rule, but in the end we found a nice GPS problem. Which can be related to day-to-day -day life. With these I, R, and U problems, just how do you, how do you categorize? How do you know uh, that something is an I problem and not a U problem? That's another good question because we are, after all, math geeks. I mean, like the both professors <laughs> who are in this study, uh, I mean, it's okay. We have, we have learned to live with that, and we are very proud of that, actually. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud member of the same group. <laughs> same group, right? But then what will happen is a problem that we might think as I and R might not be reflected by the students in the same category. A good, good, here's a good example. For Newton's law of cooling, uh, they would put a problem where uh, they ask a question, how soon should you put the wine in the cooler uh, for your guests to uh, drink it if the guests are coming at 6 o'clock. So the guests are coming for dinner at 6 o'clock and they want to find out how uh, long before should you put the wine so that it comes down to 40 degrees. Now, a lot of mathematicians think, oh, that's a real cool problem. No. Why? Because who would do that? <laughs> I mean, seriously, suppose you are getting ready for the dinner, right? I mean, who would actually work, take a piece of paper out and work that out? So, so for, a, for a math geek, it may look like a very, very, uh, very good art problem. I mean, most of the time, we get it right now. As experience, as we are growing in our experience, and, I, that, and not only for us, it's also true for another teacher who is listening to us, right? At the beginning, you might not get it right away, but after a while, you will kind of have a good feeling. Yeah. And, uh, and after a few, I'm, I'm pretty sure after a few tries, it becomes exciting, and because your students start liking it, and then you feel good, and then you learn the art of looking at the problem in that manner. We wanted to give a realistic solution to instructors. They would just take any course, calculus, trig, you know, at any point, a kind of an idea how they should start introducing the word problems. Imagine a day in November, just before Thanksgiving. A professor is driving to school to teach, say, algebra. She's tired, very tired, and the semester is coming to an end. The students are not motivated. And that is the time that during the 15 minutes drive, the professor should be able to work in the mind. Ah, today I'm going to do word problems and parabolas. Uh, watch how, what problem? Because the professor will probably have like 100 problems in the mind. Out of the 100, how should I select the problems? But now with this study, if you can just say, oh, that's like an eye problem. Very simple, eye problem, R problem. They will definitely stand the best chance of being recognized and accepted by the students. Well, uh, thank you both very much. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for interviewing us. I hope it was fun. It was. It was a great <laughs> blast. <laughs>
is about someone who tells mathematical stories using no language at all. Clowns reflect kind of the simple side of being human and that a clown often succeeds through failure and it doesn't always but often brings out the comical parts of who we are and we can be comical in many different ways. Uh, and, and so uh, when, when, you're using, when you're using humor, when you're using clowning in mathematics, is, is part of it uh, to kind of make fun of yourself a little bit to, to sort of show that the teacher up there, which to a lot of people I think who do have some sort of math anxiety, the teacher kind of looks like a god. They know all of, this thing, all of these things. Is it to kind of show that that's not the case? Yes, that's very important, particularly for people who are newer at math. If I can help them kind of not hear that mental dialogue that they sometimes have and not feel a certain baggage that they have, if they don't enter that script, if you will, that they're used to, sometimes you can't tell who really isn't quote-unquote good at math. You can't tell at all. And sometimes the clowning and the humor helps just kind of lessen that. That was Tim Chartier. And while he does have a regular job title... I'm an associate professor of mathematics and computer science at Davidson College. He's also way more than that. Tim is a person who spends half of his life trying to find the story within mathematics. And the other half, he spends trying to tell those stories in as many ways as possible. And he does not want to be the only person with these stories to tell. I try to give them what I call moments, where they remember moments of material. But the other thing that I very much try to do for students is help them have a story to tell about mathematics. And often what I will say to them on the first day is just simply that my goal is for them to have one story, one positive story, to tell about math. And sadly, there are quite a few people who do not have that. And it's very meaningful when a student comes up, particularly a student who has not enjoyed math, comes up and with a huge smile says, I've got my story. And then I always point out it's math, so we're now going to try to count to two. But <laughs> nonetheless, we do the best we can. One of the problems with telling these mathematical stories is language. Once you go much beyond high school algebra, the vocabulary surrounding mathematics gets, well, technical. Very, very technical. And this can keep a lot of people who haven't devoted years and years of their life to studying mathematics from being able to engage with the stories. This is a problem that Tim is really well aware of. Like I often say to friends, I'm not trying to be at a research meeting. Actually, him just saying that he's trying not to sound like he's at a research meeting is selling himself quite a bit short. Tim has gone way beyond just trying to change his mathematical language. He's tried to remove it entirely. That's right. Wait for it. Yep. You got it right there. Tim Chartier is a mathematical mime. Now, before you go skipping to the next story, or turn this off entirely, I want to tell you something about mime. Everything that you think about it, unless you're already a devotee of the art form, is probably wrong. Everything I knew about it, this cultural punchline that mime is, was definitely wrong. And watching Tim do mime is what proved that to me. But before we get to all of that, this was not a decision that Tim arrived at lightly. There is a bunch of intermediate steps, starting with his attempt to channel his stories through something, or more accurately, someone, different. Well, I started actually in puppetry, so I went from dolls to acting like there was nothing. And it was at a puppetry conference. Trust me, if it's a thing, there's definitely a conference for it. Speaking of, 
please don't miss my talk next month at the Unnecessary Parenthetical Conference. It would mean so much to me to see you there. And it was at this puppetry conference where Tim saw his first mime act, where he first became enraptured by this magical silent space where mimes exist. After this, he started to take some mime and theater classes, and then came the 16th anniversary of his birth. My 16th birthday present from my parents was to see Marcel Marceau perform, and that really transformed everything because it was very lyrical and poetic. He had, you know, a thousand people just in silence watching, but with him, not just silently watching, but with him in this invisible space. As time went on, there was one question that Tim was inevitably going to need to answer. He was a performer. He was a mathematician, a mime, a storyteller. But but could he bring it all together? So with, with this mime, and you're, when did you realize that you could apply this to mathematics? <laughs> like, like how, how, did, how did that come into your head? Yeah. Well, I appreciate the way you put that. Usually people just say, I have no idea what Tim Chartier is about to do and not even how he do it, but we want to ask him to come anyway. So welcome, Tim Chartier. The, um, the way that it first came up was actually someone else saw it in my work. A library called uh, from Boulder, Colorado, and they had a, an NSF, a National Science, Science Foundation grant for math exhibits that then also there would be these public math performances. And she said, I really think you could do something with your mime show. And I was working on a, or I was in my postdoc. I'd already had my PhD in math. I had no idea what she was talking about. And actually, I was somewhat offended by it. I was like, I don't do math in my mind. That's ridiculous. And so I went home and I told my wife, who it's important to know she's not only my, my, my wife and my performing partner, she also was my best friend. So she knows me very, very well. So I just turned to her, her name's Tanya, and I said, Tanya, this is crazy. I got this call. And she said that, that you know, we could go to Boulder and we could do the, our mime show within it being in this math context. And Tanya looked at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, there are several sketches that work for that. Once he got over being flabbergasted, Tim realized that his wife and the librarian were right. And so he and his wife developed the first mathematical mime show. Since then, their show has expanded greatly. And now he and his wife tour the world using mime and plungers to visually illustrate what's left after a division. The clown needs to put these plungers into two groups, which, of course, we all want to have multiple plungers and put them into two groups. But this uh, clown character, that was created specifically for that Boulder show because it deals with remainder. As well as managing to talk about infinity by, well, by not talking. The uh, infinity is one that's kind of surprising to me that we've been able to do. And Tim has performed these mime sketches about remainder and infinity and plenty of other mathematical concepts to all sorts of different audiences. And he says that each one gets something different from the show. Mathematicians tend to find enjoyment in the more technical layers that he embeds in the sketches, laughing at the mathematical content instead of the more performative aspects. Whereas in Japan, they were super into this dissection puzzle which allowed Tim to eat a single chocolate bar forever. Which, now that I think about it, sounds like this dream I had the other night. Mmm, that was, that was a good dream. Uh, never mind, n never mind. And, and in Seoul, Korea, it was the footwork that became the star of the show. There's this one part of the sketch, there's nothing else to applaud at. There's, I mean, I've never had an audience applaud at that. And they were, they just loved that moment. But going back to mathematicians, Tim does see an overlap between mathematics and mime more generally, as both of them deal with worlds that only the active participant, the mathematician or the mime, can actually see. 
think a lot of mathematicians see math in our minds, even though like one of my friends once said, Tim, there's nothing there. I mean, I don't know what you're seeing when you're doing that, because you're seeing something, but there's nothing there. And I think that some of the energy for mathematicians that they get out of seeing the show, which we call Mimatics, is they see that invisible world vis visualized with mime. And while mime may be allowing Tim to illustrate this world of mathematics, his end goal is not instruction. I'm not trying to teach anybody to divide. I'm not trying to teach anyone to do an integral. I mean, that, that's left for the classroom. It really has a different purpose. But people do see mathematical content in their own way. And part of it, because of it's an art, is for people to make those connections. And he means connections beyond just to the mathematics. He wants you to become immersed in the story that he's telling with his mime. That's the connection that he keeps at the top of his mind when he's developing sketches. One of the most fundamental things is whether or not I think people can identify with whatever the dramatic element is in the sketch. For example, this is what Tim had to say about the dramatic element in the plunger remainder sketch. Actually, you know what? Before I play this, you should really go watch the sketch. It's hilarious. I'll put it up on the Relatively Prime website, relprime.com. Make it nice and easy to find. And then once you've watched it, you can come back and hear why Tim thinks you probably connected to it. Why is he grouping plungers? Why do we group anything? I mean, why when our babies grouping objects like my son would group blocks together what, what's that about and so i think just that need to put order on things is what people identify with there is one other thing though one other very 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 important thing that tim has to keep in his mind when he's developing a mime sketch can you actually do it in silence can you actually minimize the movement down to silent movement that it's not completely misunderstood. Going back to that show that Tim and his wife did in Japan, he got a very good chance to make sure that his sketches were being understood. We got the show totally ready. We're in Tokyo, we're in the Panasonic Center, and it's, we actually had a, two sold out audiences, so the audience is sold out. We're behind stage, they're introducing us in, in Japanese, and it suddenly hit me, you know, all the time in the past when something didn't work, I'd just say something, I'd move into, Professor Tim, I teach and I'd be fun. And it suddenly hit me, I couldn't do that. I mean, this had to work the way it, the way it was designed. And I turned to my wife and, and I said, um, if this doesn't really work, like I can't talk or anything. And, and I mean, we're like, like 20 seconds from performing, you know? And Tanya just turns to me and she goes, that's why we just have to be as present as possible. We're doing it now. And, and Marceau used to say, if you don't know what you're doing, just be sure you do something and do it with full conviction. And so Tanya looked at me and she said, full conviction. Don't worry. Tim says that the show went really well. As a matter of fact, that wasn't anywhere near the roughest show story that Tim had to tell me. I was in Michigan and I went to a middle school. And so it was one of these middle school assemblies. <laughs> it's like the kids are coming and saying, yeah, we're seeing mime and math. Oh my gosh, I'm sitting in the back and all this stuff. And they're just coming in and they don't know I'm the guy because I don't wear white face or anything. And they come in and the principal gets up and goes, all right, you will not embarrass the school. You will be quiet and you're going to watch whatever is about we're about to see. And now Tim Chartier. And it was like, oh my gosh. He assures me that that one went swimmingly too. I'm not entirely sure that I trust him on that one. But no matter the struggles that he has, no matter how hard it is, no matter how little people actually understand about his work before he performs it, Tim really 
truly loves doing mime. And there is one thing, one thing that I think will always make it worth it for him. I think sometimes if you haven't seen it and so forth, it can be kind of hard to envision. But I think the thing for me literally is I can see someone a couple years after they see something and it's still very alive in their mind. Keeping mathematics alive in someone's mind? Hell, just helping anyone better understand mathematics is an amazing thing. It's even more amazing to do it without the language, without the words, the vocabulary that we've built up around the subject. For someone like Tim Chartier, for someone dedicated to telling the story of mathematics, it's these moments of engagement which are everything. When it works and when it comes down, it's just a wonderful moment to have, you know, anywhere from 15 to 1,000, 2,000, whatever the audience size has been out there, all actually enjoying math together. Uh, so can you, you do like uh, five to 10 seconds of uh, mime for, for the audience? I'm sure it'll go over great on radio. Oh, yeah, oh he's trapped in a box. I, I, oh, he's being blown in the wind. Oh, now he's a robot. Yeah, see, it's, it's, it's utterly fantastic. I'm sure they all know exactly what just happened. Yeah, and I can do it even faster if you talk faster, so as much as you want. I would like to thank Tim Chartier for doing all of that amazing mime work for us. But if you actually want to see him do it, head on over to the Relatively Prime website, relprime.com. I'll post up a couple videos of him doing his work, as well as put a link in for Tim's website, where you'll be able to see even more. And trust me, you want to see Tim do mathematical mime. It's something that you haven't seen before. It's certainly something that I hadn't. Hello, this is Kitty Staholsky from Jersey City, and this has been Relatively Prime. We would like to thank Peter Rowlett, Lynn Murphy, Tony Labello, Joe Mazur, Taranga Watonge, Kirte Primadasa, and Tim Chartier for appearing on the show. To learn more about our guests, please go to relprime.com for the show notes for this episode. We would also like to thank the musicians, lowercase n, Sebastian Gillitz, Science CTN, Jonathan Hall, and Supermilk for the music in this episode. You can find links to their music on relprime.com. Relatively Prime is a production of Acme Science and Samuel Hansen, with support from all of his wonderful backers on Kickstarter, like me. If you would like to help support Relatively Prime, head over to the website, that's relprime.com, and click on the support button, and you would be providing Samuel Hansen with sunshine and rainbows and uh, probably rent. You can also head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and a review. That's how their algorithm decides rankings, and the higher Relatively Prime is ranked, the more people will see the show. <laughs> that's great. If you have any feedback or you just want to say hello to Samuel, you can send him an email at his personal email account. Really, this is his everyday email account, samuel at acmescience.com. Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so please feel free to remix Samuel's voice to say whatever you like as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. I'm looking at you, girl talk. Thank you for listening and have a ma- That's- Math-terrific isn't even a portmanteau!